All right, well, we are continuing our series through the London Baptist Confession, and tonight, or excuse me, today, we have reached um, chapter 13 of our confession, this grander, greater section that we are in, uh, the covenant blessings. Uh, If you'll remember back in chapter 7, the confession speaks about the covenant, the covenant of grace. Uh, the, the, the covenant by which we are, we are saved and brought into a right relationship with God. And it talks about, then in, in chapter uh, 8, the covenant servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the covenant setting in chapter 9. But then what follows from this are the various blessings of the covenant. Effectual calling, chapter 10. Justification, chapter 11. Adoption, chapter 12. And sanctification here in chapter 13. This is important because there is an order to our salvation. There is a pattern even in how um, the, um, the chapters of our confession are laid out in a logical and a progressive pattern. If you think about this, why, if I were to ask you, why, if, why is the order of our salvation important? If you look at these right here, maybe specifically chapter 11 and chapter 13, why is the order in which that happens to us, or uh, the logical order of our salvation, why is that important? That's a great point. All of these actually, 10, 11, 12, 13, are part of God's work from the covenant. Where chapter 14, beginning uh, next week, is our portion, or I should say, or our response. So these are the work of God. What else, Eileen? And Absolutely, yes. Sanctification, justification must come before sanctification, otherwise you've undermined the gospel. That you must be purified before you can be saved. But Christ died for the ungodly. So the order of our salvation is important. I'm going to say more about this in a moment. But you can see that just in how the chapters are laid out. Uh, Some historical context though, as we jump into the idea or the doctrine of sanctification. Of course, sanctification, I'm going to define it in a moment. But it does concern our Progressive growth in holiness, the Christian life. Okay? Some historical context uh, at this time, and I'm thinking most specifically of when the Westminster Confession was written, uh, 1646. Um, This was still true by the time our confession was written, but uh, most specifically, some historical context. Uh, When you had this idea of justification and sanctification, you had a Roman Catholic context which mixed sanctification and justification. And other forms of legalism were very present, uh, prevalent in that day. This is the context in which they are writing. You also had this group of the perfectionists, which they argued a kind of entire sanctification, perfection, that it was possible to not sin in this life, to attain a level of perfection in which um, you just did not sin. Uh, A very dangerous view that they were dealing with as well. 
uh, you also had uh, antinomianism. And antinomianism was a major problem uh, in this day. Antinomianism. Does anybody know what antinomianism is? I'm sure everybody does. Who's going to speak up? I'm sorry? Anti-law. Anti-law. Yes, believers are completely free from any responsibility to the moral law. And the moral law, traditionally in, in Protestant theology, is defined as the Ten Commandments. If you're free from the Ten Commandments, you're in the historical line of antinomianism. And yes, that includes the Sabbath as well. That's for another Sunday school series. There's various reasons for forms of antinomianism. Um, we're imputed with Christ's righteousness, therefore we have no need to obey. We're united to Christ so that God doesn't see any sin in us. That's antinomianism. We're dead to the law. Right? We're told that in the New Testament. We're dead to the law, so we won't really need to care about it anymore. It doesn't really command us. It doesn't hold any authority over us. Um, other forms of antinomianism, we're, just, we're, we're called to love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Um, the law is just love. These were all prevalent in this time, and these are some of the things that the divines were combating in their chapter on sanctification. And, and most specifically, too, at this time, there was rampant antinomianism because the civil magistrate uh, was, was charged with enforcing both tables of the law. Church and state were mixed. Cult and culture. And in this respect, there's, there's always going to be legalism and antinomianism when the state gets involved with, Christian, with enforcing Christian morality. And I'm talking about the first table, not the second table. First table would be the first four commandments. No other gods, proper way of worshiping, proper way of reverencing, proper time of worshiping. You know, that's different than authority, um, murder, adultery, um, theft, um, coveting, stealing, uh, lying. So in this sense, this was a time when, when, when there was a Christian nation, you're going to have a bunch of legalism and antinomianism, which are the same thing, really, two sides of the same coin. But I want to ask you a question on this. What do you think, if I were to ask you today, this is the errors that they were dealing with, what do you think is a greater threat to the church? Legalism or antinomianism? If we were to say, what is the most pressing threat, maybe in our context, but just in general, what is a greater error and danger to us? Is it work righteousness or is it no law live like we want? Legalism? Oh, they're both dangerous. Yes, absolutely. I leave? I'm sorry, what? Okay, well, the reason I ask is because there are people who like to speculate. Um, Mark Jones wrote a book on antinomianism, and it's not a horribly terrible book. It came out five or six years ago. But he argues that antinomianism is the greatest threat to the church. Jason. You say legalism is 
legalism at least has to regard and take seriously things, even if they go too far. But antinomianism just washes everything away with irreverence. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. I'm going to share the gospel with a legalist and an antinomian. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to disagree with Mark Jones. I, I absolutely believe that legalism is the far greater danger to the church. Why? Um, well, it's pretty easy to point out sin. You don't really have to convince somebody what sin is. We know it by nature. And God's law speaks pretty clearly. But, but legalism holds a form of godliness, but denies its power. Uh, to me, I, I believe legalism looks like the real thing. It looks like somebody loves and is obeying God. Antinomianism doesn't. You can just, you can just tell. You're living a life that, that is in total disregard to the Word of God. Legalism, it takes a lot of work to convince somebody that they're a legalist. It takes the Spirit of God radically changing their heart. So I personally believe that legalism is a greater danger. And I think, you know, I'm in good company, a lot of people, but, but obviously they're both, they're both very dangerous. They're both errors. They're both heresies if taken uh, to, the, to, the, to the extreme. So that's just a little something to get us thinking. Um, let's, um, let's jump in now. More specific, I have another question for you here as we begin. I asked this question in new uh, membership uh, interviews. Uh, so if you're a member here, you've been asked it before. I asked this question when parents bring me children who've made a profession of faith. Uh, what is the difference between justification and sanctification? Why is it important? Ricky. Amen. Excellent, excellent answer. Uh, he nailed it. In fact, this is really comes out in our catechism, question 36 and 38. What is justification? Justification is an act. Ricky said it's a one-time thing. It's an act. It has a, a beginning and an end. It has a terminus. Our sanctification does too, but that's in eternity. Um, Romans 5.1, you have been justified. Having been justified. It's a passive action, something that's happening upon you. But it's also having been, it's, it's past tense. It's completed, it's not ongoing. And because of that past act, we have peace with God. And rejoice in tribulation. But sanctification is the work. It's not an act, it's a work. It's ongoing, it's progressive, it continues. It's the renewing of the whole man. It's an enabling us to die to sin and to live to righteousness. Um, and in this respect,
expect, as we jump into the chapter, I want to make sure that this is clear, that you are clear on this. The relationship between justification and sanctification, as Ricky said, they, they're, they're, they're distinct, they're different, and yet they're related to one another. As Eileen said earlier, one comes before the other. Justification comes before sanctification. So they're, they're different. There's a different logical order to them. Um, but they're also, in some sense, related. How are they related? Well, sanctification is the result of our justification. You cannot be sanctified unless you are first justified. And I will say as well, I'm going to argue this, that it is the result, it is the inevitable result of justification. There is no justification where sanctification does not follow. But we can only deal with sanctification in light of justification. Remember uh, Romans 4, we were justified as the ungodly. We are sanctified as the justified. And this, of course, is that basis upon which we have assurance, that we have joy, that we have motivation, proper motivation to pursue a holy life. The judgment of the covenant of works has been rendered and passed upon us. The judgment of the final judgment has been brought into this age. The declaration that Christ will make at the last day when all of humanity will stand before God and he announces that verdict. That verdict has been brought into this age and announced to you if you are in Christ. It's already been written. You don't have to wonder what that announcement will be because God's already told you now. And so far from living a life trying to please God or merit favor with God, we have that announcement that gives us joy to pursue holiness. It's the purpose of justification as well. I mentioned that just a moment ago. Uh, kind of. He justifies us in order that we might be godly. For the obedience of the faith, Paul says, Romans 1. God saved you, Ephesians 2, 8-10, for good works. That's the purpose of you being justified and not immediately raptured into heaven so that you would live good works. It's also the proof of our justification. We could run to James 2 here. Um, speaking about Abraham. Was he justified by faith alone? Was it not his works as well? Um, of course, that's talking about the evidence and proof of justification. The evidence of a genuine life as opposed to a hypocritical life, which was the plague of the churches that James was writing to. So it's the result, it's the purpose, it's the proof. This is how it relates to justification. We, we've got to keep this in mind if we're going to properly tackle this chapter. All right, with that, let's jump in. To chapter 13, and we get this def definition of sanctification. <clears throat> Let me read it here. 
Those, they who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and new virtue created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. This is sanctification defined. And I want you to notice there's, there's two parts to this chapter. It starts with our uh, position in Christ, who we are, and the legal grounding. And then it starts, then it moves to the progressive ongoing of the life in Christ. Position and then progression. They who are united to Christ, effectually called regenerating, have a new heart and a new spirit created in them. This is the position that must come first. We must be united to Christ. Union with Christ must come first. We must be effectually called. This goes, looks back to chapter 10, which we've already covered. In fact, if we were to cross-reference chapter 10, paragraph 1, we would see those whom God effectually called um, through enlightening their minds and taking away their heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills. This chapter's picking up on that. It's saying that sanctification is the continuation of what began when you were effectually called. Again, an order to our salvation, regeneration, justification, adoption must come first. You have the beginning of the transformation of the individual in effectual calling, and here you have the fuller development of it. Uh, regeneration. And regenerated, having a new heart and new spirit created in them. This is the new birth. Being born again. New life. And don't get caught up on the phrase, it's poor wording, I think, a new spirit created in them. It's just speaking of the Holy Spirit. It's not speaking of something new that's being created. It's just the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens in the life of the believer. A new life begins. And how does this happen? How do these things happen? Through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. I mention that because our sanctification is built upon the work of Christ. He purchased our sanctification for us. It's not a virtue of you, your works, your effort. It's by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. 
I'm going to return to that in a moment. Let me ask you a question then. Who is it that sanctifies? This this is a really, even in Reformed circles, uh, a, a really intense debate. Um, is sanctification the work of God alone? Monergism. Work of God. Is sanctification the work of man alone? All your efforts. Is sanctification the work of both God and man together? Synergistic. Let's do this. I'll put you on the spot. I want to show of hands. Raise your hand if you believe that sanctification is the work of God alone. Alright? Sanctification the work of man alone. Whew, we have no Pelagians. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Raise your hand if you believe that sanctification is the work of both God and man together. Alright. Okay. It's about 50-50. <laughs> Yes. 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 That's sanctification. Is is the work of God Christ. First you've got to have Christ, you've got to have Holy Spirit regeneration, but you have to have the atonement as well. So it's God. That's why I'm, that's why I understand the Yep, okay. I I like how you think, yes, absolutely. Um I'm gonna argue that God is the one who sanctifies us. Um God elects Christ purchases our sanctification and the Spirit brings it about. Um, However, many in the Reformed tradition do say it's synergistic. Um, The reason why, uh, in fact, one of my my favorite books on sanctification is J.C. Ryle's Holiness. He makes this argument that it's synergistic. I still reckon, that's been a book of the month before. That's That's a book that changed my life. That's a book I hand out a lot, even though I disagree with him on this point. Not ultimately, I don't really disagree with this point. I think maybe the way that he's framing it is is a little bit unhelpful. Um, There are many passages that say, exhort us to obey, to strive, to put to death, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
Sanctify yourselves, yes. But ultimately, we can't change our hearts. And that's why I argue it's monergistic. God alone can give us a heart of flesh. God alone can bring this about. So how then do we deal with these questions? So many texts to put sin to death, to fight, to beat your body, to work out your own salvation. Well, absolutely, we we strive, but we strive because God's given us the ability to strive. And we strive knowing that God alone can sanctify us and that He's often pleased to do this in the context of our striving. We're not going to become patient people without striving to be patient. Sanctification, when I say monergistic, I don't mean passive. Let go and let God. That is a dangerous error. The key difference, I think, is that Our striving or our good works are the context of our sanctification. And that's different than our justification. We are not justified in the context of striving to do good works. But we are sanctified in the context of obedience, striving to obey the law. So we're still 100% dependent upon God, and He's still doing 100% of the work, yet He's pleased to use our efforts in the context of pursuing the law in order to sanctify us. So that's why I argue the way that I do. I think the divines hold this as well, as I mentioned earlier, this really is the last chapter on the kind of monergistic or the the work of God in the covenant before it turns to the next chapter is going to be faith, which clearly turns to our response to what God has done. So, we'll talk about that. I have another question for you related to that in a few moments, but... At the end of the day, remember what I said to Mark. I, I wouldn't get hung up on it. Um, when you say it's monergistic, there's a, absolutely an element of truth. And when you say it's synergistic, there's an element of truth there because we are called to, to work out our own salvation even though it's God who works in us. Um, but, but ultimately, it's God. Say what? We act in faith, yes. And I'm going to cut you off there because I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Uh, Don't want to jump ahead. So, uh, yeah. The key is the context or setting of our sanctification that we are sanctified in the context of works unlike justification. All right, let's keep going. Um, So that was our positional. Now let's get to the progressional aspect of sanctification. We are farther sanctified really and personally right that that's to combat the error of like legal fiction roman catholicism well you're saying you're justified but you're not actually justified uh excuse me you're saying you're justified but you're not actually righteous because they 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 um, oppose imputation they call it legal fiction um that you know we are made righteous really and personally through the Word and Spirit dwelling in us. 
Do you think this is important in this set, in, in this um, uh, respect? That the same virtue as our justification came about brings about our sanctification. It's through Christ's word and it's through his spirit. It's by the word and the spirit. And the spirit is not a power to help us do this or that, it's a person. So we can run to John 17. When Jesus prays, Lord, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We could run to Titus 1.1. The knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. So sanctification is through the same virtue. His word and spirit dwelling in us. Next here we have as it continues on, put off and put on language. What does sanctification look like? It, it entails putting off certain things and putting on other things. Here's the put off. What do we put off? The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. Mortification is putting sin to death. In fact, one of my top I'd say probably top three books. Most important books of the Christian life. Most important books I've ever read. Most important books, I think, in church history. If you were to ask me. In the top three is John Owen's Mortification of Sin. Um, if you haven't read that, put it to the top of the list. It is... It is... I, I, can't, I can't express how important I believe it is. But he writes a whole, it's a, it's a book on the mortification of sin. Putting sin to death. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Romans 6, 12 and 13. Don't offer your members as instruments of sin. Romans 8, 13. If, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death what is earthly in you. So it's, it's this putting off of this sin. And then it talks about this whole body of sin is destroyed. Um, you need to know here, it doesn't mean that, that um, all evil and sin is destroyed, obviously, uh, in the sense that it does not mean that all sin is completely removed from us. Um, it's been dealt a death blow, but there's still skirmishes, there's still pockets of resistance that need to be uh, put down. Um, it's just saying in the sense of like the, the, the rule of sin over us um, has, has been dealt a mortal wound and it extends to every aspect of our being. Like total depravity. Right? We say total depravity affects our, the way that we think. It affects our emotions. It affects our wills. Well, in this sense... Through the word and spirit. Sin has been destroyed. That death blow has reversed that. It heals our wills, our emotions, um, um, our thinking. Not totally, but in this sense it's being renewed. And then the lusts are more and more weakened and mortified. 
grace grows in the heart of believers. So this is put off language and then it moves to put on. What do we do positively? This, this quickening, we're more and more quickened. Romans 12, 1 and 2, the renewing of our minds. 2 Corinthians 3, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is the forward life. The forward movement of holiness in the life of the believer. Sin is mortified, but they will also, we will also grow more and more in Christ's likeness. I think this language is helpful in a practical respect because you know, if we look at sanctification as progression, as a, and, you know, as a process... Um, it helps us deal gently with other believers when they're struggling with sin. You know? Um, you know, not just to focus on the ways that they are failing in the moment, but, but looking and, and, and seeing that, yes, this is a battle and a fight, and look more at the bigger picture of progressing. Dick? Yeah, interesting. I haven't thought about it that way. More and more. Yeah, but, but I mean, obviously the end goal, that, that progression is in view. In the sense, it's always going to be forward movement. Kind of, and that's not, not as if there'll never be setbacks, but over the long haul. The graph, right? You know, <laughs> it's eventually going to head up in every, in, in, in every respect. Um. Okay, let's, let's move on. We're going to move quickly. Uh, chapter uh, 13, paragraph 2. This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, and thereby there still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. This is the imperfection of sanctification. Remember I said earlier, this really targets the perfectionism, the higher life, Wesleyanism. Um, it is imperfect in this life. Always going to keep that in mind. We'll never be fully and perfectly sanctified. Throughout the whole man, this hits again at what I said a moment ago in the sense of like it's, it treats all of our faculties, every aspect of our being like, like total depravity. Everything that we are is touched by this sanctification. Um, it's imperfect in this life. The power's broken, but the struggle continues. Um, it's unfinished would be a better way of putting it in a sense. Not defective, but just unfinished. There's still resistance the flesh is still with us. So, the imperfection of sanctification, and, and now finally this 13.3, in which war, 
Although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed to them. It is a war. War is a terrible thing. War is strong, strong language. Sin will often create havoc and deal blows that hurt and stain. God always wins. Again, just goes back to as we think about this, how we can love other people in the sense that sometimes God's people may really, really, really struggle with sin. And we need to understand and be sensitive to the fact that they may struggle with sin. And because and, that speaks to the reality that this is warfare and we should help them fight. This remaining corruption will prevail, but in true believers, God's Spirit is at work in them. A continual supply of strength. And the regenerate part will overcome. Right? This is emphasizing that sanctification will inevitably happen. keeps us from the error of thinking that we're justified and we're just going to stay the same or if that's okay. I mean, we are told at times in Scripture to make your calling and election sure. We are called at times to say, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. We are called to fight and to strive and to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to, to flee youthful lust at war against our soul, to work out our own salvation. And so, in this sense, we ought to take this as a call to perfect holiness in the fear of God. To press after a heavenly life. And that to the truly converted, this will always happen. And they will give themselves to all the commands of Christ. Teach them everything to observe everything that I commanded. It's calling of the Great Commission the indispensable sanctification that must follow. Well, as we move towards a conclusion, I'm going to come back to another question here. How are we sanctified? Think about this, working towards a conclusion. Is sanctification by faith or by works or by both? Ethan? Uh, by faith. By faith. Karen? Yes. Yeah. 
God. Work out your salvation here. For God works in you to will, yes, faith, yes, to do works for His good pleasure. Yes. Uh, think of the Apostle Paul when he says, "I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me." I read that and I hear God's working. It's God who works in me, and yet He speaks also in the context that He's working as well. I don't think that's synergism. But there's an element of truth in the sense that God uses our, our striving and effort. Yes. Ricky? Uh, it's as much a work, in my opinion, as a beggar with his hands open waiting for someone to come along and place some type of sustenance or some type of monetary help in his hands. Um, it's, it's begging God, pleading with God um, to sanctify us. It's, it's, not, it's not like we're out there on our own in a field plowing and tilling um, with no assistance from God or by ourselves, but we're more like the beggar than we are the one who, the one who uh, works alone. I think I can agree with that. We are a beggar and we receive from God, yes, but we also must give ourselves in that sense to receive it. Um, to answer this question... Sanctification is by faith. Romans, excuse me, Romans. London Baptist Confession, close. Uh, 14.2. The principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting, there's that language, Ricky, receiving and resting upon Him alone, Him alone for justification, sanctification. And eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Yes, we strive, we fight, we discipline, we work, but we do so. That is an act of faith. That is an act of faith. And this is, you know, I think Karen's question, or thinking out loud, really kind of, gets a, a kind of a tension here. What is sanctification? Is it doing good works? No. It really isn't. Because anybody can do good works. Sanctification is the purification of your heart so that you do good works for the right reason. And only God can purify your heart. God sanctifies our hearts, and the result is good works. My professor in seminary, one of them used to say, look, guys, sanctification is pretty simple. Look to Christ, and he will sanctify you. Where is Christ found? In his word, in his worship, in the church. Which is why the principal work of sanctification is first and foremost us giving ourselves in faith to where Christ is found. And He will lead us by the hand into good works from the heart for the right reasons. It's an act of faith. And yet, we're sanctified in the context of pursuing good works. Well, i got to end right there. Sorry, no more time for questions. Uh, we are three minutes past. Um,
There's a summary. I'll leave that up so that you can read and copy if you're taking notes. Uh, But if you have any other questions, feel free to come talk to me. Uh, Let's go ahead and close in prayer.